Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 178, recorded for the week of August 17th, 2022. What's in the Microsoft debt box? Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. Did I do it in the right tone? I wasn't sure if that was, it caught the seven yeah. tone properly, but I, I'm trying. Yeah. Yeah, I think you did well. Yeah. It was a little, trying to get a little anguish into it. It's, I'm, not, I'm not the best actor, as you guys have noticed. So. <laughs> no Brad Pitt, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no Brad Pitt. That's why we're doing a podcast that has no video. <laughs> how's, uh, how's your week, you guys? I was uh, off in India, so uh, yeah. I was uh, a little busy. So we're recording a little late this week, but... Uh, you know, it seemed like uh, it was a quiet week, which was nice. Mm-hmm. How about for you guys? It was. Yeah. Yeah, super quiet. You know, a little bit of a outage-filled week, but uh, which was, you know, not so fun. But, you know, recovered and handled nicely. So. Yeah, did some training. Started to enjoy Kubernetes, which is slightly worrying. Oh, oh no. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's, that's not going to be good. <laughs> going to have to start looking for a new co-host. Yeah. <laughs> He's gonna go full Kubernetes. Full like, Kubernetes. Yeah. yeah. Just, just remember, don't you can't drink the full Kubernetes Kool Aid. You had to <laughs> had to be a little bit humble about it. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get into some topics. Uh, I do have Kubernetes as a topic, so you can talk to us about uh, right. all you've learned uh, as later on. But uh, first up, AWS fourth annual Storage Day was streamed live on Twitch uh, from AWS headquarters this week. Uh, there's a couple of different things they talked about. Uh, I'll mention a few of them here, and then we'll talk about one of them a little bit more in depth later. But uh, for EBS snapshots, uh, you now have the ability to snapshot a single volume or all the volumes of an instance today. But now you can specify a, a disk set uh, of an instance for a multi-volume set that can be limited. So if you have a, drive, a server with you know 10 drives, we only care about the data on four of them, you now don't have to set up four individual snapshot jobs. You can set up one snapshot set, multi-volume set, basically, to snapshot those. Uh, the announcement of the Amazon File Cache, which is an upcoming new service on AWS that accelerates and simplifies hybrid cloud workloads. Amazon File Cache provides a high-speed cache on AWS that makes it easier to process file data regardless of where, you're, where it is stored. Uh, it'll, store, it'll serve as a temporary high-performance storage location for your data stored in on-premise file servers or in file systems or object storage in AWS. And this new service also provides a single unified view of dispersed data sets with sub-millisecond latency and up to hundreds of gigabytes a second of throughput. File cache is designed to enable a wide variety of cloud bursting and hybrid workflows, ranging from media rendering and transcoding to electronic design automation to big data analytics. And finally, the five new storage learning badges have been made available. So you can now get badges on things like your blockhead, file or object storage, or data protection and disaster recovery and data migration, all as new badges you can earn in your quest for the badges. I mean, you, you, getting a you're a blockhead badge, like I'm all in. Like you know, I'm not even like super into block storage, but I want that badge real bad. Yeah, I mean, it just says yeah. block, but I added the head part because I think it's funny. Yeah. It was blockhead. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The file cache thing is interesting, though. I. Uh, you know, depending on how that displays out, and you know, again, it's not in beta yet, so you can't even check this out. But if it dis- if it actually gives you a single endpoint that automatically maps to uh, mm. file storage or to object storage and a high uh, speed cache huh? layer there, uh, that's actually yeah. really interesting. Yeah, like all yeah. of a sudden, so many workloads that you know I would consider EBS except for the performance or EFS, but the you know, like now maybe there's an option. Pretty sweet. Or, or even have the ability to have data that lives in co- on premise and lives in the cloud that you don't even know the difference. It's just it's available to you in this cache, and then that allows you to seamlessly move things as a migration happens or 
perhaps you do want to have it on premise because you have a better storage cost for that particular function. Like there's all kinds of advantages this gets to you. Yeah. And then think about the Amazon's own managed services needing to reach out to, to your objects to do analytics or something with now they can point their managed services through this cache at a variety of different um, data sources provides a really nice abstraction. In fact, when, um, when we when we did the uh, TCP talks interview, we who did we do that with? Which company? Trainer, Google Trainer, AWS Trainer. Oh, well, I'm forgetting his name at this moment as well, but it's on <laughs> my tongue. He wears a cowboy hat and he works at Amazon now. That's, like I have all yeah. Bart. Bart, Bart, yes, Bart, Bart Castle. That's it. Yes, Bart. Uh, Bart. Yeah, he he went into a lot of detail about about the, the advantage Google has with, with the way they architect their storage because it provides this this single abstraction layer regardless of where things are for all the services to go and get it. You know, you don't need to copy data out of cloud storage to somewhere else to do something with it. It all just works, you know, magically. Magic. 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 Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I'm curious to see um, more about this file cache as they come out with it. I, I worry that it'll be outrageously expensive. As, oh, yeah. As, my, as, you know, as well it should be. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to be abused. Like, I know that I would just torch this. I know I would. <laughs> with bad architecture design like it would be fantastic but it should cost me an arm and a leg to do that yeah well http3 support is coming for amazon cloudfront uh this of course is http3 which uses the quick uh user datagram protocol based stream multiplex and secure transport protocol that combines and improves upon the capabilities of existing transmission control protocols or tcp this can be enabled in all new and existing cloudfront distributions on all edge locations worldwide at no additional charge HTTP uh, slash three provides benefits to all CloudFront customers in the form of faster connection times, stream multiplexing, client-site connection migration, and fewer round trips in the handshake process to reduce errors. And this is all done because quick connections uh, leverage UDP support, uh, connection reuse with connection IDs, independent from IP address port tuples, so users have no interruption or impact. Customers operating in countries with low network connectivity will see improved performance from their applications due to the quick protocol. I continue to be blown away by just the theory of HTTP3. I haven't used it myself, but I, I like I like the idea. I, I dread the day where I have to troubleshoot it, um, like at you know the packet capture level, because I, I you know like it's just really hard with UDP. But you know enabling this like the edge of the, you know in your CDN is such a great enablement where you can you know add this to your application with very little effort by just changing your infrastructure. Your in most cases, your your application doesn't need to support HTTP three or or make any changes there, and you automatically get it. And with the fallback to HTTP one or two, so pretty rad. Yeah, you know, I I've had some mixed results to enabling HTTP two on the load balancer, um, but yeah, it's never been hard to enable it on the cloud front side. But on the you know, depending on your web application and how it supports HTTP two protocol and. And if you're doing streaming type of things, it can work or not work for you on the ALB. But you know, CloudFront it's always been simple. So yeah, that's a great way to get started. You get some immediate benefits, especially if you're doing static hosted apps. Um, I think this is a great benefit to you. So I'll definitely be curious to see uh, you know if this is a big thing for people or if it's something that just doesn't get leveraged as much as we hope it will be. But uh, I suspect it'll be everywhere soon enough. Yeah, especially since it's free. It's such an easy enabler for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be quite noticeable, I would think. Pages that uh, open many connections don't have to do so anymore because because of the. Uh, oh my God, my brain's just not working today. <laughs> Multiplex connections. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I, I guess you know, shaving an average of thirty-five milliseconds off off a connection time for every single connection you make is 
is going to be really quite noticeable. Yeah, I mean, especially those you know lossy networks where you know packet loss is a is a problem and the consistency is just not there. Like it's it's going to be very difficult. Well, if you uh, you have a need for uh, fast, low latency network connectivity to your devices in your factory floor, Amazon's private five G offering is now available. Uh, I think they announced this at reInvent, or at least uh, rumored it to be coming. And uh, but they now have it available to you to now launch for one radio antenna and up to 100 devices. The new service lets you design and deploy your own private mobile network in a matter of days, is easy to install, operate, and scale, and does not require any specialized expertise. The network, once created, can be used to communicate with sensors and actuators in your factory or provide better connectivity for handheld devices, scanners, and tablets for process automation. The private mobile network uses the CBRS spectrum. It supports 4G LTE today and will support 5G in the very near future. AWS Private 5G runs on AWS Managed Infrastructure. It is self-service and API-driven and can scale with respect to geographic coverage, device count, and overall throughput. Pricing is for the radio unit itself, which is billed at $10 per hour, the 60-day minimum, which works out to right around $7,500 a month. Oh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, a month. And then uh, today it's limited to one radio unit that provides up to 150 megabits of throughput spread across 100 SIM devices. And they are working on adding support for multiple radios and a greater number of SIM cards per network. Uh, when you do sign up for this, uh, you will sign up on the website. You'll get your order confirmed, and then you'll provide them shipping address information. And once it arrives, a certified installer will come and install it in your facility for you. Uh, and that'll all be available to you in U.S. regions only today. But I suspect will be extended out pretty quickly as they get more adoption and understanding of the service. Yeah. And... To answer the question, the, the elephant's in the room, why don't people just use Wi-Fi for these devices? Uh, the more Wi-Fi devices you have, the, the worse contention gets and the slower the network gets, slower performances. But with 4G, LTE, and with 5G, um, every device is, is assigned a time slice on a particular frequency, so you have a guaranteed quality of service as the number of devices increases. That's awesome. I didn't know that. because I, yeah. I, I was thinking the exact same thing. Why would I take the time to make sure that I've got a 5G radio and all the devices when, you know, IOT has made Wi-Fi sort of ubiquitous. But that's really cool. Yeah. That's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I've provided my value for the day. I'm, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm checking out. Yeah. I'm checking out for the rest of the show. That's great. <laughs> well, AWS is also co-announcing the release of the Open Cyber Schema Framework. It just rolls off the tongue. OCSF project. Uh, in today's fast-changing security environment, security professionals must continuously monitor, detect, respond to, and mitigate new and existing security issues. And to do so, security teams must be able to analyze security-relevant telemetry and log data by using multiple tools, technologies, and vendors. This is complex, and the heterogeneous nature of the task drives up cost and makes slow-down detection and response times. Our mission, uh, or sorry, AWS's mission is to innovate our, on behalf of their customers so they can move more quickly and analyze to protect their environment. With that goal in mind, along with several partner organizations, including Splunk as the co-sponsor, AWS is announcing the release of the Open Cybersecurity Schema Framework, which includes an open specification for the normalization of security telemetry across a wide range of security products and services, as well as open source tools that support and accelerate the use of the OCSF schema. Uh, like I mentioned, Splunk is the co-founder with AWS, but they also have support from Broadcom, Salesforce, Rapid7, Tanium, Cloudflare, Palo Alto, DTEX, CrowdStrike, IBM Security, Jupyter One, Zscaler, Sumo Logic, IronNet, SecureOnyx, and Trend Micro, which are all part of the partnership. Uh, interesting, no elastic on this partnership, huh? Mm. So weird. Notice that too. <laughs> it's going to be really nice to, to, to be able to have interoperability more easily between different tools. Um, but the, the, the cynic in me sees that 
this pattern has been done before with, with AWS. First, they make it easy, and then the part, all the partners um, change their schemas, change change their data formats. Everyone's using the thing, and now AWS can come along and replace that service with a native service, um, just as a drop-in because all the data's in the right format now. So I think it's um, it's it's an enablement, but it's also it eases migration later on. Mm. That's I mean that's true. Any kind of standardization does, but it's. The flip side is, you know, getting this data massaged into the right format so that it's actually usable is just very difficult. And since the changing world changes so fast, you're constantly on, you know, trying to scramble to keep up and write your fluent bit agent or whatever, you know, Lambda function to, to parse these things. And so this is, if we can get some consistency, it's fantastic. I mean, anytime we get consistency in logging, it'll drive down costs, right? Because, you know, as the more schemas you have, the more money it costs you to host them and to index them. Um, and yes, while there's that predatory side of like Amazon could just drop in a competitor, um, again, like it, it's only for the customers who have the bare minimum needs because typically they don't have the full capabilities of a solution like CrowdStrike or Splunk or others. So, but it, you know, it does give them that opening. But I think the, the amount of cost in multiple schemas is worth it for anything, even if you take this risk of Amazon swooping in and taking over. Um, but it also opens the door down for Azure and for GCP to also do the same thing. So, you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Amazon EKS and Amazon EKS distro now support Kubernetes version 1.23. Uh, highlights of the Kubernetes 8 version 1.23 is a graduation of several new capabilities, including pod security and the horizontal pod autoscaler. Uh, now moving into beta phase is the ephemeral container st- uh, feature. And there's some EKS-specific changes, including CSI migration feature for EBS on by default, uh, as well as this is the last version that'll support the uh, Docker shim natively. And so you will have to be moving to the new ways to do Docker uh, in the next version of Kubernetes on EKS. So keep that in mind. Uh, if you've been holding off on that move from Docker shim to the new uh, launcher, uh, this is now the time to do it before it's too late. I mean, it's more often than not such a no-op. So. To, to make that transition, so yeah, I mean, the switch to container D was like one configuration line in my my yeah. in my containers. It was so easy, like not a big deal. I'm sure there are some use cases where switch to container D will be a problem, but um, for most people, I think you're right. It's a non non issue. Yeah, I just uh, yeah, yeah, I haven't had uh, anything that where I was surprised. So that's, but I mean, you know, it's also, you know, I'm not doing anything complicated by you know storing state or or doing anything funky. So. The ephemeral containers are, are kind of interesting. It's, it's, I looked at the word and thought, well, what does that mean? Aren't containers mm-hmm. designed to be ephemeral? Like, yeah, I just popped it up because that was the first time I'd seen that too. I'm like, what is that? Yeah, yeah. well, I guess, I guess the, the more people are moving away from building containers that still contain things like package management and, and OS tools and things in distroless um, images, the more the need is to, to be able to have a, a sidecar in a pod so you can log in and use those tools to inspect, uh, you know, running processes in containers that aren't working properly. You know, debug tools. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, for those who don't know what an ephemeral container is, could you guys describe it? Yeah, you can. Usually, pods are immutable, but ephemeral containers let you deploy a container into an existing pod just for the purposes of, of debugging. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and if it shuts down, it doesn't get restarted. It's there's no guaranteed resources. It's 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 kind of it's, it's a bit hacky, but um, yeah. But it's way better than yeah trying to like do a whole new deployment just so that you can get a diagnostic you know 
data out of your pod or, or something. Yeah. If, you know, so that's that's a pretty cool feature. That's pretty cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can definitely see the value of that for sure. Well, then the final feature this week: uh, Amazon Cognito enables native support for AWS WAF, uh, which allows you to enable WAF in front of your Cognito user pool. Uh, and hosted UI for common web exploits. Uh, Cognito provides built-in protection for securing your public-facing applications such as compromised credential check and adaptive authentication. But if you want additional protection, you can now add the WAF. WAF enables you to define rules that enforce rate limits, gain visibility into the web traffic to your apps, and allow or block traffic to Cognito user pools based on businesses or security requirements that optimize your costs, uh, optimizes your costs by controlling bot traffic. Um, which I, I appreciate that this is available because many... You know, if your goal is to get security teams to leverage WAF and to leverage as part of their standard, you want it to be able to support multiple services. But then on the flip side of this, I feel like this is a managed service from Amazon I'm paying for. Uh, shouldn't these things be built into the service and things that I don't have to worry about as much? And I, I get the parts that I embedded into my app, but that's where just normal WAF would have supported. So I'm not entirely sure what they're enabling here, other than it feels like something they should have already been doing for me. But uh, I don't know. How do you guys feel about this one? Exactly the same as you. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I went through the same dance going, oh, this is kind of neat. And then I was like, well, wait, what? What? Why? <laughs> like, shouldn't this, you know, I'm I'm already probably enabling WAF to authenticated sessions. And, and I don't I don't know why I would need a separate path. So like this is this is kind of strange. Oh yeah, I guess if you have WAF in front of your app, that's great. You can see everything that's you, you can filter on the events pattern matching. Mm-hmm. But if, if somebody's sort of hammering Cognito, you're not going to see that unless it's a successful login. So, I mean, at least it gives you visibility into the fact that somebody's trying to uh, log in as all your identities or, or something. I guess, yeah, I guess if they're trying to log in as, as you know, me or like, that's the part I don't quite understand. As, as a managed service, like I'm getting visibility into someone beating down the front door of Amazon. Like, mm-hmm. but I'm, I think there's specifics here I'm lacking. Yeah, I've not used Cognito. It's every time I look at it, I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, everyone on the internet has a lot of not nice things to say about Cognito too. <laughs> so everyone's everyone when, they, when someone comes into a forum, they're saying, "Hey, I'm having problems with Cognito." Like the first people are like, "Just move to something else." Yeah. <laughs> like we can try to help you, but like you're most likely going to run into edge cases you're not happy with. It, it's it's sort of amazing how that that product has just not gotten better since they launched it. Really, it's uh, it's struggled. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not keeping up with other identity providers. Not at all. Which you know sort of makes me think that they're they're pivoting, right? Because when you see a service on Amazon not getting features that you know people need, that's pretty core like that, and and for this long not getting major features, it tells me that they're building something new. They're going to replace yeah. it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, moving on to GCP, uh, you can accelerate your developer productivity with a new query library. Uh, Google has launched a query library and new features to make it easier to query your logs in cloud logging. The new text and drop-down features of cloud logging are designed to make querying something that you can achieve with a few mouse clicks. These features automatically generate the logging query language necessary, uh, which makes it super easy to get into your logs. But if you are trying to leverage standard GCP services, they've now given you the query library, which extends the simplicity I just described, with templates for common GCP queries, things like ALB access logs, uh, Etc. will now be able to, through a click of a button and in and, and a standardized format provided by GCP, making it so you don't have to redo work for GCP services. And eventually, I assume that you'll be able to actually save your queries uh, into a custom query library, but that is not there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is, you know, every time if you take a user who's used to using Splunk 
and you move them to another platform, it's the first thing they're sort of asking for because Splunk sort of does this natively in the product a little bit. And so it's a, it's a really nice feature for being able to very quickly, you know, filter out information from the noise that you need when you're looking at your logging. And pretty cool. And I think on the back end too, from a Google perspective, like it reduces the resources amazing, like amazing amounts, right? With a with a more specific query that doesn't do like, you know, query query for this keyword on all fields type thing. So it's a good a good ad for both sides. Jonathan's got nothing. So I got nothing. Yeah, Jonathan's never thinking about logging ever again in his life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's like, I don't, I don't do logs. <laughs> Say the word, he just goes off to like a, a tropical island in his brain. Yeah, go to my safe place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, this is this is managed logging, so you don't have to worry about it so much. Yep. But, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a story that we're gonna tell you at least. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on to the next story then. Uh, you know, have you ever wanted to uh, maybe turn off alerts when Ryan deploys software uh, or when Jonathan changes a, a load balancer? Uh, you now have the ability in Google Cloud to pause or snooze your alerts, which actually is a great name. Well done, Google. Um, you know, pause versus snooze. I'll take snooze every day of the week. Yeah. With the new snooze feature, you can disable those alerts during those pesky maintenance windows uh, or for an environment during non-business hours. Uh, you can create a snooze by providing specific alert policies you like to snooze and a time period that the snooze will occur. During this window, if the alert policy is violated, no incidents or notifications will be created. When the window ends, the alerting behavior resumes as normal. Cool. And I like that it's a, a snooze and not a pause because mm -hmm. a pause gets forgotten to be unpaused at the end of uh, a long night of deployments and a snooze comes back by itself. So that was a, that was a lot of forethought right there. Yeah. <laughs> I found it completely shocking that this didn't exist in AWS, that you only had enable, disable. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, when first moving over there. So this is a fantastic feature for, for Google monitoring. I love it. Yes. The other reasons it's, it's good is, uh, you know, you, if you're calculating SLAs based on metrics that you've collected, all of a sudden they now reflect really the reality um, of excluded maintenance periods. Mm -hmm. So how to manually go back and say, yeah, but that, that outage there was actually a, an approved change or something. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code, and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right. And then Google Cloud Deploy is receiving several new features this week. Uh, Google Cloud Deploy, of course, leverages Scaffold, which is an open source tool that orchestrates continuous development, continuous integration, and continuous delivery, and it's directly integrated into Cloud Deploy. Uh, but now Google Cloud Deploy can generate a scaffold configuration for you for a single manifest application when one is not present. When you create a release with the new gcloud deploy releases create uh, dash from Kubernetes manifest command, 
It will provide an application manifest and generates you a scaffold configuration that you can then edit and modify. Uh, delivery pipeline, uh, that's not for scaffold. Uh, moving on to delivery pipelines, which are always in use. New releases navigate a progression sequence as they make their way out of the production target. The journey, however, is not always smooth. And now with the delivery pipeline suspension, you can now temporarily pause problematic delivery pipelines to restrict all releases and rollout activity. By pausing the activity, you can undertake an investigation to identify problems and the root cause. And if you're saying to yourself, but it's not my pipeline, it's the damn app, uh, you can also have the new capability to release, uh, through release abandonment, you can prohibit application releases that have a feature defect, outdated libraries, or other identified issues from being deployed further. Release abandonment ensures an undesired release won't be used again, while keeping it available for issue review and troubleshooting. Uh, and then the final feature of this is comparing application manifests can be tricky, but with a new release inspector, it makes it easy to review and compare a manifest against releases and targets within a delivery pipeline. These are awesome because it, these are sort of hard things that a lot of people have sort of written their own custom code to manage. Um, and, you know, either in their complex deployment jobs on Jenkins or or something else. And so, like, you know, the ability to sort of plug in and have something pause uh, a deployment if the error rate goes up by a percentage is is an amazing feature if it's easy to enable, right? It can be very difficult to do in reality because you know certain apps lack feature flagging and 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 certain things can be really tricky with that. And then you know the abandonment is kind of neat. I hadn't thought of that until reading this article that there's not really it's not typical that you can abandon a release in in most of these tools. You just sort of deploy a new one over it as quickly as possible. So that's that's kind of a neat thing too, which I hadn't really thought of. Yeah, I, I know that I uh, I read through this and I was like, hmm, we should be looking at cloud deploy more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that mm -hmm. was my first takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys don't have anything else to say about that? <laughs> we'll move right on to Azure. <laughs> too soon for Jonathan, I think. Yeah, too soon. Not enough coffee for Jonathan today. <laughs> like, I see him like I thought he was going to say something, but then he's. Like, <laughs> Uh, well, Microsoft uh, had announced to you all in December 2019 that they were coming out with a new region in uh, Asia uh, in 2019, but that is now officially available to you now in uh, August of 2022. So well done. <laughs> you know, two and a half years later, uh, you now have a full uh, region available to you in Qatar. The new region is available with availability zones, giving you the best availability possible from Asia. The, the cloud region wars uh, are waging every every day. I see a different article. Oracle's got the most data centers. No, it's it's Microsoft. No, it's somebody else. Yeah, mm. it's all of them and none of them. Like they're, mm -hmm. it's, like they're all sort of it's all sort of smoke and mirrors too because they're not all regions are created equal. So yeah, mm. and they're they're measuring in di different metrics like data centers versus availability zones versus regions versus you know like it's. You know, are you are you counting the edge location as a thing? You know, in some cases, yes. And this is like, okay. Yeah, but you know, no one reads the details. Mm -mm. Well, and the reality is, no one. There's, there's, you know, there's going to be someone in each of these cases that needs that specific use case in that specific region and needs that availability everywhere. But it's, you know, like nine times out of ten, there's something that you can use. Maybe it's a little bit of a compromise or not. And so it doesn't matter which cloud provider you're using; you'll be fine. And then this, uh, this feature is kind of cool. Announcing the Microsoft DevBox now in preview. Uh, Microsoft is announcing the preview of Microsoft DevBox to the public. Microsoft DevBox is a managed service that enables developers to create on-demand, high-performance, secure, ready-to-code, project-specific workstations in the cloud. With Microsoft DevBox, developers can focus on writing the code only they can write. 
instead of trying to get a working environment that can build and run the code. Dev boxes are ready to code and pre are ready to code and pre-configured by the team with all the tools and settings developers need for their projects and tasks. Developers can then create their own dev boxes whenever they need to switch between projects quickly, experiment in a POC, or kick off a full build in the background while they move on to the next task. You know, this seems like one of those things I'd like, but I mean, half the fun of starting a new project is installing um, a new version of Python or something that completely hoses my local laptop and you know, I spend the next three or four days frantically trying to undo what I've done that breaks six other things. Um, I'm sorry, you but, said that was the fun part? Yeah. <laughs> right, we got to work on your definition of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't get out much. Uh, yeah, so, I, you know, if, as long as this environment is, you know, easy to use and isn't as cumbersome as some of the other, you know, providing dev environments like logging to, it can be slow or, and it can be a little inflexible. Um, but yeah, I think this is a great thing to add just because, you know, like I, for some reason, I don't know, old dog, uh, new tricks or something. I can't stop just breaking my local development environment. It's just a thing now. This is how you know it's time to, you know, you're up to pasture. Just, mm -hmm. just give up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, I like the idea of having, um, you know, multiples of these. Looks like you, there's been an idea of having, uh, dev workstations in the cloud for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you could use Amazon Workspaces or you could use uh, you know, any of the other VDI type solutions out there. But they're always limited to one box where this is the ability like, hey, I can have this one over here building a build. This one over here I could be working on this other project. I like the idea of being able to switch and multitask that way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if developers actually work in that pattern, but uh, I appreciate the idea that it's available if I wanted to do it. I mean, switching projects is definitely like, because um, you could be running, you know, a version. Or you're waiting for debt, you know, or you're waiting for QA to come back with. Yeah. You know, your code works, it doesn't work. And, you know, like it's just, you're, if you're working on different applications, you know, this version uses this version of Node and this 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 thing or this version of Node and, 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 you know, like there's definitely ways you can replicate that in your local environment. But I would say no two developers does it the same way. And, um, and this is just clearly a service that's built as an enabler so to sort of remove that. So you can do it once, hopefully on repeat. I guess it makes license management for tools that you got to pay for. Um, pretty easy as well because now the license can be built into the cluster box. Mm, I thought that. It's you know Docker desktop or uh, Visual Studio or whatever. Everything becomes as a service. And that's the future. That's the <laughs> way it sort of is. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it uh, for new news this week, you guys. Uh, I think we are ready to go to the lightning round, which is short this week. The lightning lightning mm -hmm. round. And I think Jonathan, <laughs> you're up first this week. I am. Optimize resources across your organization using AWS Compute Optimizer. What a name. From a designated account. Uh, I just designate myself as not the person doing this work because mm -hmm. this sounds awful. Yeah. So now, you know, I have a central place to ignore all those things that I know I should be doing, but they're not in my feature roadmap. So go away. Optimize means turn off, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's code for turn off. Yeah. Yeah. The Amazon Chime SDK announces Elastic Channels. Which made me really angry when I first saw this, because I was like, why are they building Elasticsearch into Amazon Chime? And then I realized that that's not what it is. And then I tried to figure out what Elastic Channels were, and I couldn't figure that out either. And then I just cried, because I was like, this makes no sense whatsoever. You know how you can do different Zoom rooms? Uh-huh. And then combine those rooms, like you can set, separate out into rooms and then come back to a main thing? Mm -hmm. So, so why would this just be called Amazon Chime SDK? So, announces support for breakout rooms. I want my twenty minutes back. 
100 percent yeah yeah yeah. i'm glad you read that article because i didn't pick that up i I tried to read it and i could not get it past the word elastic it just i think my my visceral reaction to all things elastic like every time i see that word i just my brain shuts off for like Mm -hmm. short circuits jonathan's problem earlier with logging again (laughs) (laughs) they're just using the word elastic to to piss off (laughs) elastico (laughs) exactly Amazon EBS adds the ability to take crash-consistent snapshots of a subset of EBS volumes attached to an Amazon EC2 instance, which I look forward to the future outage where someone goes, oh, crap, we didn't add that volume to the snapshots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have somebody to add a new disk during an outage. Oh, we need more space, add a new disk. Didn't get added to the backup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, this is still good, but I mean, it's it's funny because I, I had to double, do a double take because I'm like, I'm pretty sure this existed and it, it it existed in the backup service where you could define a subset of volumes to be backed up through the service, but this is now native to EBS. Yeah. I mean, you could always do it with, you know, you're just writing more scripts like, Hey, I'm going to write a script for each of the volumes I actually care about or, you know, backup policy for each of them. And now you can just say, I, like, this is the server I care about. I only care about these five drives. And, and again, like it'll, it, it's a good practice, especially for like SQL servers uh, or Oracle databases where you have multiple mount points, but not all of them matter. Um, I think that's it's a great use of uh, you know of this technology. Yeah. I mean, this will be really good for Windows workloads, right? Because you can. Oh yeah. Now you, instead of you know basically, I forget what you have to do in Windows, but I learned it one time and then quickly forgot it. Um, you know, stop everything basically for a hot second so you can take your snapshot. Quest the disks. That's the, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, and so this is you know I think this removes the 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 need to do that. I hope. No, you still need to do that because you still need to flush the data to disk. You should still coordinate with a with a local service to to flush the data out. But I guess the difference now is that what I mean by crash consistent is is that every every disk in the set is is snapshotted at the same point in time. Mm-hmm. Right. Not yeah, because otherwise, if you're QSing to a point and then you don't get a snapshot at the same time, it's a problem. But that's why, the, at least in the AWS backup, you had the ability to pre and post uh, scripts of the backup, so you could actually call up that QS function or then resume. A database call or whatever. So there, there was a ways to do it. I assume with backup, and then it's all be integrated in database backup at some point in the next couple of weeks, I'm sure. And then we'll get, we'll get that capability to do what you're talking about, which would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be useful for things like um, you know, if you're on Oracle on um, on EC2 or something, if you use uh, Oracle's native uh, block storage instead of you know use the file system overlay, then you'd something like this is essential, so you can back everything up in a in a consistent way. Also, don't use Oracle. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> like, I guess that is a valid use case, which I didn't think of because I would never do that. <laughs> Just because you can doesn't mean. <laughs> All right. Well, there are some things coming up really quickly here. So, uh, in the next week or two, we have VMworld, uh, August 29th through September 1st. Uh, the uh, we'll see what they have to announce. I'm sure a lot of Tanzu announcements will be coming as usual. <laughs> Uh, so we we'll look forward to seeing their Tanzu strategy continuing to evolve. It's just Kubernetes. It's just Kubernetes. Why are they still talking about it? Because <laughs> it's the future of their company. <laughs> they can't survive without it. Uh, join us uh, for the new show and tell edition of Google Cloud Security Talks on August 31st. This is a new event that Google's doing uh, to highlight all the things happening in their Google Cybersecurity Action Team and the Office of the CISO. Uh, and the Q3 installment uh, on August 31st is a special show and tell edition where apparently they're going to be telling us uh, exciting things about zero trust, security operations, secure cloud, and more, including uh, fraud and bot detection, managing compliant environments in Google Cloud, and much, much more. Check that out if you're interested. You say show and tell. I want this to be like a, you know, 
tell me how how you fought off an attacker or you know or how they got in I mean, and how you found it right yeah i mean maybe they might they might do that you never know uh the microsoft power platform conference is coming up 918 through 922 in orlando uh and then a new csa conference is coming in in september uh september 26th through the 30th called september september folks uh in bellevue washington September 26th to the 30th, if you're interested in the CSA conference, uh, that'll be available to you up there. And then Google Cloud Next in October and Oracle Cloud World in October as well. October 11th through 13th for Cloud Next and the following week is Cloud World with Oracle. So lots of news coming up in October in the cloud space uh, as we head into reInvent season uh, and all the cloud providers try to one-up each other before Amazon shuts them all down in November. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> That's it for another fantastic oh, week in the cloud. We'll talk to you guys next week. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Uh, well, Apple, uh, you guys, has set a new deadline for corporate employees to return to the office three days a week. Uh, you know, they had previously tried to do this uh, in April, and then uh, Omicron happened. So I suspect that we will have a new variant uh, <laughs> in September <laughs> called Applecron, uh, which will screw this up for them again. Because every time you try to get ambitious and say we're going to bring people back to the office, you cause another variant to come through that'll screw us all. So. Uh, but apparently, starting uh, starting September fifth, employees will need to work in person at least a few days a week, and that few days is three days per this article. I just hope we have someone that listens that works at the CDC, so that Af- you know, like Apple Crown <laughs> becomes a thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, we do have anybody from the CDC, but we yeah, did, I doubt yeah. it. Yeah, I, but a boy could dream. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, you know, we keep seeing like Google's, you know, trying to ask people to come back to work. Um, you know, Apple's now forcing this three-day thing. Uh, it, it, again, it feels like the wrong time to be doing this. But then again, you know, a bunch of companies in the Bay, in particular, and across the United States, laying off in attention, you know, in anticipation of a upcoming recession. Uh, and so maybe they feel like they have leverage over their employees to force them back into the office. Um, it just, it feels weird. It, it just. Like, what have you lost? Like, I, I do like the idea of the office for ideation. I know I'm going to the office more more often. I'm telling you know my employees, hey, I'm going to be there Monday and Tuesday, and if they want to come, they can. But I'm making that choice to go, not because I need to go or I'm being told I have to go. Um, although I take it back, I, they did ask us to be at a meeting on Mondays, which is why I'm there. But again, I don't have to be at that meeting. It's still optional. But they they've requested that we be there if we can. So yeah, I keep. I keep getting confused feeling like there's, there's a reason that I don't see for making, you know, designating a time slot. Like there's something that you can only offer, you know, benefit wise or, you know, by getting enough of a concentration of people on campus in the same day. Like maybe there's some sort of concern that if I saw the financials or something, maybe I would feel a little differently, but I just don't see why people are, are, taking these these policies and be like these three days or 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 in you know the case of google like it i think it's like it can be any three days but it has to be three um it's it it's confusing like why don't we just move to what works right and maybe that's different team by team maybe it's different company by company i feel like these these over 
overreaching sort of policies do a disservice to everything we've learned in the last two two years. But going back to that productivity um, chat we had a couple of weeks ago, the claim is that people are being less productive than they were before, although that seeming seemingly was a uh, related to the the economy as well. But maybe maybe right, maybe it is you know you need a critical mass of people on site to to make providing certain types of services feasible. You know, the cafeteria is not going to open if there's only five people there. All right. Well, they also have to justify the fact that you're spending how much money in offices that are sitting empty doing nothing. I mean, like that's a lot of costs that a lot of companies are incurring. Um, yeah, but the policy to force it back to the office. And they just built a really fancy ring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that the way, right way to address that problem? Or or maybe closing down some campuses elsewhere in the world, you know? like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like Apple's still maintaining the original headquarters, at, you know, and then they have Apple Park. Uh, so yeah, they have a lot of office space sitting around in in Cupertino that's just you know empty for the most part. So I get why they you know they want to make that money more valuable to them, but it seems like it's going to cause people who don't want to come back to the office to find other work. And, and maybe it's harder at this moment to find other work. But long term, like once you start commuting every day and you still have now have to deal with traffic and you're now dealing with that that pain of that, it, it's going to change your opinion real quickly about working from home or not working from home. And I think. You know, I don't mind it right now, but I can see if it got back to where it was pre-pandemic, where I might not like it as much going mm-hmm. to the office. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of good reasons to go to an office. Like you said, like there's there's nothing that replaced a whiteboard during the pandemic, right? Everything that required or was made better by, you know, in-person collaboration took a hit, you know? And so like it was a lot harder to design an application and to, you know, really collaborate and do things like pair programming in the same way, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's reasons. And so it, like, you know, I just feel like the, the forcing people back to a time is ignoring all those good reasons and makes it feel detached, right? It's this policy now, and it's not about being more productive or an enablement in any way. It's policy that you have to abide by. Yeah. It would be nice to get an explanation, a bit of a, a, bit of a justification. Other than, other than because we want you there because this was the way it used to be. But yeah, I, I, I missed the uh, the collaboration time. And I think the other thing I miss is it's just harder to get hold of people because now everything's scheduled in a calendar. And if I want to talk to somebody, I've got to book time. Mm-hmm. And the time booked is is usually too, too, usually too much or it's hard to get somebody mm-hmm. uh, when you want them. All I really want was a five-minute chat. But mm. it's hard to it's hard to get somebody's attention and, and get that interaction, and so it, I can see why that that may be a hit to productivity. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there was a when I was in India, I happened to be there with a product leader, um, and you know this email came from our boss, and I was reading it, and there was an acronym, you know, that's a very product acronym, and I was like, I don't know what this means, and I, you know, he just happened to be sitting next to me. I'm like, hey, you know, what what does this mean? And he explained it to me in like three thirty seconds, mm-hmm. and now I know what it is, and I don't have to ask anymore, but. You know, otherwise it would have been an email and it would have been, you know, so like there is a bench. Like I, I definitely don't doubt that there is something there. And, you know, I think part of the problem that Apple has is that they're built on secrecy. <laughs> and so I think for them, the idea that they have prototypes now outside of their building they can't control or physical devices that are, you know, in different places, it causes them a pause of like, well, is it only a matter of time before we have some technician leave a la- you know, an iPhone on a, t- on a table in a bar again and gets leaked the verge. Um, and so that, you know, that secret, that secretacy that they have as part of their culture and their, you know, their desire to keep things under wrap, do they feel like they've lost control of that by people working from home? And so that's where their pressure to come back into the office is coming from. 
I was thinking about that, but then surely they just say five days a week, because if you if you have it home one day a week, it's you still have that um, that risk. Well, maybe maybe you say you don't need you don't need the device those two days of the week. Those are your two yeah. days to do meetings and That's to right. uh, you know, other administrative work, <laughs> and then or you know, again, it's a minimum three days. So maybe if you are in that that department, you come in more often. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But then you know, to the same thing, why does the you know the team that's managing the retail network? have to go into the office, right? Like, mm-hmm. like why, why do this company wide policy for, for something that's very specific to, to a hardware based sort of control? Like that should be a team decision, right? Like, and protecting that product release and the feature set of that new device, like should be a team goal. And you get the team invested in like, no, we do want to have the secrecy and we want this to be, you know, part of our big announcement in September and not leak. So, um, Let's take that seriously. We'll just agree to meet here as a team because that's the way to do that. And there's ways to do it that we don't have to set this overarching policy. I just wish that more companies were willing to take. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be an interesting next few years, right? Because again, in a recession, you know, the power kind of moves back to the employer for trying to force these policies. But then I think productivity might actually decrease because I mean, I know without having a commute my employers gained my commute time as time that I'm willing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if, if you assume that's productivity, productive time, which I think it is, um, then, you know, you're losing out on that because now I'm in a car for an hour each way. And so that's, you know, that's lost time that I'm not willing to give them back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, it is really curious to see if productivity is as ha- badly hampered as they think it is. Again, I think ideation is what hurts the most. And I think I agree with you, the whiteboard, you know, I've tried a bunch of different iPad apps during the pandemic, trying to be able to do whiteboarding and draw out things. And they, they're adequate. They're not great. You know, I wouldn't, I'm definitely not going to replace the ability to have a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like the idea of coming into an office to do ideation or have those quick conversations and then, okay, go, go, go home and do the work and execute mm-hmm. on what we talked about. And then we'll meet back up again at the, our next sprint planning meeting in two weeks and we'll do the same thing and we'll see how we got. I think that's the right balance of it. Um, and, and you're, or even ad hoc, like, Hey, I need to do more whiteboard on this. Let's meet up and do that. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. And I office could really be advantaged for, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what happens over, over the next, you know, year or two, I think as work starts to continue back in the way it used to be in some areas and other areas, it stays remote. So we'll see. Yeah. All right, guys. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye.